Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with the Rattle Magazine. Welcome to your Rattlecast number 194. So glad you could join me, um, those who could at this early time. It's always interesting to do a show at a different time to see, uh, you know, to kind of test whether or not the time we usually do it is right. So we'll see if more people show up or fewer. Um, but before I begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on any podcasting platforms you're listening to this on. You, know, you can listen to it on Spotify or iTunes or Amazon or uh, whatever, whatever you have. There's some way you can leave a review or something. Um, so please do if you would. Now, today's guest is Frank Dulligan, and that's why we're at the early time. It's very late in the UK where Frank is. Um, it's like 1 a.m. Uh, at the regular time, so we moved the show up. But before we start with that, we're going to go to uh, our Poets Respond Poets like we usually do, and uh, from Italy now, so it's an international show. Um, Mark Allen Martino is here. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for, for being here. Um, it's always great to have, it's just such a great coincidence that we were having an early show today so you could join us. Uh, I know you're a regular viewer, you just mentioned, but, uh, but yeah, in the, I, uh, I assume after the fact the next day, because it's very late in Italy where, where you usually are. I usually listen as a podcast, actually, mm-hmm. like in my car Yeah, when I'm driving to or from work. Um, yeah, always some, some, sometime during the week when I have some time, Yeah, perfect. but I do try to keep up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the idea, so I'm glad it works out. So, uh, so your poem, Technicolor Coronation Day, I think um, everybody can imagine what the poem was about, but, but can you talk a little bit about what inspired it and, and how the poem came to be? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, obviously it was inspired by last week's, last Saturday's uh, coronation, and um, I'm really kind of a curmudgeon about all things, you know, having to do with the royal family, uh, be it, you know, uh, weddings, uh, births, uh, deaths, funerals, and now coronations. I really couldn't care less. I think the whole thing, not to offend anybody, obviously, but that's my opinion. It seems like an anachronism in today's society. Um, I feel the same way about the things that happen in the Vatican here where I live. Um, and anyway, just, uh, I did see a tweet that said all of this was better in black and white. And it kind of struck a chord in me. And I kind of immediately, I don't know, this line, Technicolor Coronation Day came into my head. And I thought, it scans pretty well. It's a nice I am. And uh, it just kind of fell into a villanelle, which is a form that I really like. And I don't write in very often um, because it's kind of difficult. And this one sort of wrote itself, I'd say. You know, once I got the third line... I realized they worked together, and then and everything kind of fell into place. Yeah, well, the best poems tend to do that. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read it? Technicolor Coronation Day. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, good. All right. Technicolor Coronation Day. It's Technicolor Coronation Day. Our phones and television screens are lit. All skeletons are neatly tucked away. Scepter in hand, the king makes his entree. An old man no one likes. A bore and twit. It's Technicolor Coronation Day. I'm sitting this one out. I'd rather say read a good book or pick a nasty zit. All skeletons lie neatly tucked away in closets where they frolic, bump, and sway. Refresh your feeds. There's no mistaking it. It's Technicolor Coronation Day. And now it's time for everyone to pray in grave solemnity. Ignore the pit of skeletons so neatly tucked away. 
The king will sit above the noisome fray, his majesty a target for their wit. It's technicolor coronation day, all skeletons mute, neatly tucked away. Yeah, and like you mentioned, that's a villanelle with that refrain. Why do you think the refrain works for certain poems and not others? I don't know, but I think that writing this, I kind of figured out after years of chipping away at the villanelle Mm -hmm. how to write one. And I think what you need to do is the first and third lines have to be, obviously they have to rhyme, but they also have to make sense as a couplet at the end. Um, And so what I did was I wrote out all the rhymes I could think of using day, and then I got the second line um, lit, and I just made like about a half a page of rhymes for each of them and picked out what I thought were the most interesting (laughs) words. And once I got the first and third lines and I realized they made a couplet at the end that kind of worked, then what you do is you kind of try to vary it as you go down the villanelle. And sometimes you add an extra word or you change a word or you make it bleed into maybe the next line or the previous line and uh, see how much kind of variation you can bake into something which is already half-baked once you have the first two lines. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird push and pull between something which is already half-written and something which you have to kind of push and pull like silly putty to kind of make it do something different and unexpected. It's a pretty tricky thing to write, actually. Yeah, well, it's nice to have uh, some lighter poem in verse, which um, you know people always ask for but never send. That is always, it's been for 20 years, the bane of my existence has been the fact that people say, why is there not more more humor and why is there not more formal poetry and i'm like well why don't you send it <laughs> so you well you there do. is there <laughs> is yeah the, the internet is full uh, journals are full of formal poetry really good stuff too mm-hmm. but um i guess they're just not sending it to you <laughs> Um, send it, send it. Yeah, definitely. I always say that. And then one more thing I want to ask about. Cause, so uh, someone wrote back and said um, that that it was uh, mean-spirited to say an old man no one likes, a bore and a twit, and to describe the mm. king that way, because he's a human being too and not just the king. What do you say to, uh, to that comment? There are lots of human beings who are uh, unlikable, who are bores and who are twits, and much worse than that. Um, in my estimation, you know, and I'm, I'm no royalist, and I'm, you know, he even as the prince, I mean, I think pretty much public opinion was never really on his side. Nobody ever really thought of him as a charming man or as somebody who was, you know, highly interesting as a human being, mm-hmm. unlike his ex-wife Diana or his mother Elizabeth. Uh, and so, him becoming king doesn't really change that for me anyway. Yeah. So he's just just a human being, I'd say, mm-hmm. like all of us. Yeah. You know, nothing more, nothing less despite the noisome fray. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And, uh, having a, I just love having a variety of poems. It's great to have this one. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Bye. Bye. That was Mark Allen DiMartino with uh, yesterday's poem, Technicolor Coronation Day. Now we're going to switch to tomorrow's and get a little preview of, uh, of Matt Dillon's poem, Poem with a Penis. And so, uh, hey, Matt, how are you doing? Hey. Hey. Yeah. I'm doing good. You. Yeah, so uh, so this is a poem uh, about guns, which, you know, we have so many poems submitted about that. It's probably the number one topic in Poet Respond over the last nine years we've been doing it because there's so many shootings in the U.S. And they're so tragic and traumatic on sort of the, the nation's, um, I don't know, psyche, I guess you could say. And um, yeah. and so so it's always difficult because there's so many poems about 
uh, about mass shootings and, and just gun violence in general, um, it's always hard to stand out and do something in a different way. So how did you approach this poem? Like, why did, uh, you know, why did you, you confront the poem in the way that you did and how did it come to be? I think the, the I guess the thing that spurred the poem was thinking about masculinity and how it relates to gun violence because over 95% of mass shooters are men. And so it just got me thinking more about like the symbols of power and how we think about power and how we think about strength and how we sort of kind of teach men to like value their capacity for violence and as like see that as their like as their strength as their like the way that they can use force as being the root of their power mm -hmm. yeah. and it kind of evolved out of that yeah well no one's heard it yet so why don't you read it early on let's let's hear this poem poem with a penis go ahead okay here we go poem with a penis because a penis is just like a gun a cowboy walks on screen with a heavy iron because a penis is just like a gun Boys are born with fingers on triggers, and the so many deer ripple in knee-high grass as if shaken out of a dream. Two, four, five. Because a penis is just like a gun, the boy knows desire is a kind of violence, leaving him laterally through a barrel. There will be holes in the steel of road signs and chipped from trees. You could walk back and forth in the emptiness he makes of love. Because a gun is just like a penis, you know a man invented violence, his body a weapon, powder and the flower of fire on his lips. Because a gun is the shape of a penis, power is the shape of a gun, and killing is the shape of power, and his body is a fight waiting to happen. And it was through scab and bruise and fractured bone that he passed into manhood. Because a penis is just like a gun, he holds one, its smooth chrome a call. Here is a hurt made just for you. You will know yourself by the wound. Yeah, powerful poem there. Uh, that was uh, Matt Dillon's poem, Poem with a Penis. And it really gets at something that I think we don't talk about enough, which is that that I think the reason why we don't solve the gun issue is because we um, need gun culture to support military culture, which supports imperialist culture. And it all ties together with that. You know, it's 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 the... You know, all the video games with guns, all the toy guns, all that all feeds into this machine that we've been, you know, churning out since uh, for the last 150 years or more. Um, and so it's a great way to put the poem there. How, how, how long um, was this poem in process, would you say? Because that's one of the things with these poems about guns, because it has like every week, it could be about any gun shooting, because it, it, there's, I don't know how many, uh, since the beginning of the year, hundreds of mass shootings, I, I assume. Um, so, so was this a poem that was percolating for a while or did you sort of, did some kind of levy get breached and poured out? Cause it feels like one of those poems, like, uh, Mark was talking about before that, um, that just had a kind of a flow outward where it seems like it wrote itself almost. Yeah. I, it wasn't that long. It was, it was about a week that it took me to write it. And, um, it was, you're right. It, there was such an alarming quantity of gun violence in the news, it was impossible to ignore. Um, and I think it just, I, I never really set out to write about gun violence or thought I would, or like take a stance on 
the issue. I, I mean, I, I know that there's there's going to be so many people thinking about gun violence and and how to solve that problem. And I didn't really have an opinion about that, but it just the symbology of that image of masculinity and guns and how you can trace guns back through American history and some and their representation in so many ways. Um, it just the the harmony of those images kind of just motivated me to keep writing about it. And I think that's why that line's repeated so many times in the poem. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's what makes it feel like it. It's just a, like a like a release of some kind. And so, uh, yeah, really powerful poem. I'm looking forward to sharing that with uh, everybody uh, through through our distribution channels tomorrow. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us today, Matt, and previewing it for everybody watching the show. Thanks for having me. Yep. Take care. Yeah. Once again, that was Matt Dillon with tomorrow's poem, "Poem with a Penis." Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, who of course is Frank Dulligan. So sit tight, and I will be right back with Frank. Thanks again for your patience. Uh, today's guest, like I said, is Frank Dulligan, uh, the interviewee in the Irish Poets issue that we just came out with. Frank is an Irish writer living in the UK after 15 years in the Middle East and Far East. He holds an MA with a distinction in writing from the University of South Wales. He's been widely published in literary journals and has five collections published by Cinnamon Press, most recently in The Coming of Winter. Um, Secrets of the Body, a pamphlet of poems about the mythical Pope Joan, was published by Eyewear Publishing. Um, he's also published two collections of haiku. We can talk about that, too. Um, in Dubai, he was an active member of various spoken word collectives and has a screenplay for the short film Melody that won the Audience Award in the Mumbai Women's International Film Festival. Um, he's got a whole bunch of other things going on, as always. And here he is, uh, Frank Delligan. Hey, Frank, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you again. I just I always love your work, and... Um, I'm looking forward to sharing poems and, and talking poetry a little more in more detail, maybe, than we did in the interview in Rattle. Why don't you go ahead and start out with uh, reading a poem? Okay, this one is called Dingle in the Coming of Winter, and it gave the name to my last collection. Um, I should maybe just say a couple of things. One is that Dingle is on the southwest coast of Ireland, very rugged landscape. It's on a peninsula that leads out into the Atlantic, so quite wild sort of weather. And also it's an area that's been designated as a Gaeltacht. Um, and that's an area where the majority of the people, their native language or their main language is actually Gaelic. So they speak at home and speak to each other in Gaelic rather than English. Um, so when I come off later, I talk about the old language I'm referring to Gaelic. Dingle in the coming of winter. So much of it is memory, the sea slapping at the harbour wall, the fishing boats nodding to each other from their moorings. Some days the mountains are misted, vision limited to what's close at hand, a murder of crows revelling in their black arts, staking out the green between the harbour and the road, goose-stepping the curb, cocking their heads at any trespass. The road itself seems a little stiff as it moves up past the bright pastels of houses and shop fronts. I stop to rest at a shop window. Young girls conspire in the doorway, giggling in the old language, replenishing the myth that youth lasts forever. Rain gathers in the sky like an argument, 
in evening bars, lines of glasses uncloud to black. But there is tiredness too. The months have slowed. Cold has found its way into bone. I came here feeling the need to drown in the untamed weather, escape, be in dingle in the coming of winter, understand that this is just the way of things, land trying to outlive the sea, winter tapping at the door, selling its soft white promise of sleep. Yeah, that was a dingle in the coming of winter, That I think the title poem from uh, your most recent book, and um, and a beautiful one too. I just love that that last line in particular, um, selling its soft white promise of sleep. Um, can you talk a little about about how um, you got into poetry? I know we talked about this um, in the interview, but but for people who haven't read that, um, what, what was your poetry journey like? Was it something that you always wanted to do, or was it something that you picked up later in life? Uh, well, I, I sort of tinkered around with poetry when I was at university, but. I didn't write much and, you know, it didn't really um, earn the name poetry. It was terrible stuff. But um, in my career, I, I ended off in financial services business and worked for Lehman Brothers in London. Um, and that's a very pressured environment. Um, and I found myself burning out in that in that job and decided I needed to do something about it. And so I, I made two choices. One was to move into martial arts to, you know, just get myself fit. And the other thing was to do something that I would have the same level of passion about and that would absorb me. And I decided that would be poetry. And so I started writing poetry at that stage. And that was back in the mid to late 80s, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I remember, you know, I'm fascinated by that, just that sense of um, trying to better yourself in both ways. And the, and the idea that the, um, you know, getting physically fit and working out, doing martial arts, um, you know, there's a component um, on the mental side that has to be kept fit too, which I think is really the, the purpose of poetry, um, you know, is to, is to keep us sharp and engaged with the world and, and finding new meaning and creating things. Um, do you find that... Um, that 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 it changed you very much like like do you think that you know it, you know obviously doing martial arts you uh you know you got physically fit you could see a difference could you f- feel a difference mentally could people tell the difference around you when you started uh you know you took that break from working so hard and started writing poetry i think probably i became a little more relaxed i had um a different outlet um and i i was became interested in you know all of the arts and so I guess that would have affected my personality. Uh, it would have added a dimension that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and poetry is a great outlet for, you know, for expressing and uh, trying to understand the things around you. We often write a poem and we think it's going to be about one thing, but it ends off being about something totally different. And I'm always interested in the underlying narrative of a poem that might not be on the surface level. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's read another poem before we, we talk a little more about that. So uh, next up, we have uh, we have Small Town Brewery Blues. Yeah, I, I wanted to give you a selection here. So I've got five collections. So I, I stole from all of them. Um, this is my hometown of Dundalk, and it's said about 1973. And it's the first sort of probably real job I had, and it was just prior to going to university. Small Town Brewery Blues. 
It was down a wet alley between some shops. Each morning that summer between the shops, I walked through its sloppy yard, the smell of hops. I took bottles off a line, placed them in a crate, warm bottles of local beer, 12 to a crate, earning money for uni from morning to late. Most lads left school for the production line, walked out of school to a production line, money in the pocket, a life of grime. Stayed where they started, brought good money home, raised a family with the money brought home. Hard-working men gave an edge to the town. When stacking the crates, a bottle could explode. Glass glittered the air when a bottle could explode. One lad lost an eye as he stacked his load. They gave the dangerous work to casual labour, jobs no one wanted, done by casual labour. We needed the money, were employed by the hour. Kept my face turned away when I built my stack. Blindly crashed crates together, constructing my stack. Never complained, took the glass on my back. When summer was over, I left that town. Put my books in a bag and left that town. I kept the boots they lent me and moved on. Understood now how hard work makes the man. Yeah, and that was uh, Small Town Brewery Blues uh, from one of the older books by Frank Dulligan. And uh, what is that form, Frank? That's something that I've never seen before, I don't think. That that repetition in the first two lines and then the third line, uh, there's a rhyme, if everybody can uh, see here. Yeah, it's meant to... It's meant to sort of imitate the blues, sort of. You listen to a blues song, mm -hmm. they have that sort of rhyme in it. Now, this doesn't follow that exactly, but it's to give that impression. It's a, It wants to be slightly folky, bluesy type of song. And it's a form I, 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 I don't know whether I came up with it myself or I may have seen it somewhere, mm -hmm. but it's one that I've played with a few times. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, I wonder, I mean, maybe we could call it the Dulligan or something. It's always good to have a... Uh... A form name after you. I've never seen it before, and I've seen you know millions of poems, um, and so um, it's really fascinating. So, so how the um, the the repetition plays with it too. Um, you know, we saw the refrain in um, in uh, Mark's poem, the beginning poem um, about the coronation. The day. Yeah. yeah, in the Villanelle, and um, there's something about the way music generates poetry. Um, you know, it's the sounds that push poems forward. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how, um, you know, you, you follow the, the language because you do so clearly in all these poems? Um, yes, I think um, I like repetition if it's done well. Um, and I think I learned a lot about repetition when um, I was part of spoken word collectives in Dubai, um, where some of the spoken word art artists are very, very clever repetition and and then usurping that 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 sort of um that repetition by changing it a bit so you have to listen clearly and so i liked um i like doing that sort of thing and i think also repetition i was going to say hammers home the, the message but it by stating the thing twice you're sort of being quite emphatic about it you're putting it down there uh, and for some reason, it sounds feels a little more solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it definitely does. Um, you mentioned, um, I think you said that your early poems were rubbish. 
I think is the word you use. Or, or, yes. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> so, so what makes a poem rubbish and what makes a poem like good or not rubbish? Like, like what is the difference and what are the, the insight that you learned along the way to make poems um, sing and, and not, not make you feel that way? I think probably by reading a lot of poetry. Mm-hmm. I was quite ferocious in, in my reading of poetry. And I think you begin to respond to certain poems and then you, you enjoy it. But then if you want to write, you've got to go back and read it again and find out what was it that solicited that response from you. And you begin to learn. And quite often it's the image, it's the metaphor, it's the way it's constructed and put together. And my earlier poems were, you know, sort of doggerel rhymes. They were uh, prosy. They they didn't have that extra layer of sophistication. I think poems need to have more than one layer for them to stand up. They should, you know, invite the reader to go back and read it again and get something different than something extra from the second reading. Um, and I think if it does that, it's successful. I'm not suggesting that my poems do that, but that's what I aspire to. Well, I think they definitely do. How do you how do you find that second level? How do you find layers in the poem? Like like say you're writing out a poem, you're thinking back to a story or describing a scene. Um, how do you find the, the next level to go to? Because that's the thing when we, we workshop poems on our Friday workshop. Um, a lot of times we'll say like this poem doesn't have a sense of it went anywhere. It only had one level you know, to read it. Like I, I say like the uh, speaker knew the conclusion at the beginning of the poem is usually a problem. How do you find um, your way into, um, into, into a new layer in, in poetry? If you're lucky, it comes. And I think if you've been writing for a long time, it will, uh, it will sort of happen. But the other thing is, I think, think widely about the theme that you're writing about so that you've got lots of different ideas and they all come and inform the poem but also, I think it comes from the big thing we keep telling people is to rewrite. And don't just write the poem and think it's done. It's not done. And the rewriting quite often will give another insight, particularly if you're disciplined enough to put it away for a while and come back to it. Um, and that other insight into the poem starts getting written into it. And so the process over a period of time is what does it. I go back to some of the poems in in my first collection, um, and I've obviously got lots of drafts of them, but the very first draft of a lot of those poems are very, very different, just don't have it at all. Hmm. And it was this process of writing and rewriting that did it. And quite often for me, it was the process of sending them out to magazines and collecting rejection slips (laughs) and Every time the rejection slip came back in, because these are the days when you posted them, when a rejection slip came back in, I, I I would have, I would look at the poem and think, oh, no wonder they rejected this. Look, it's, it doesn't do this or it doesn't do that. And I'd redo it. Um, and so I was teaching myself to rewrite and to, um, to add something to it. And I think that then becomes the habit. Mm-hmm. You go back and you don't necessarily accept the first right although sometimes it does sometimes it just comes and you know you just 
turn your blanket to to the east and you know bow down and say thank you yeah that is something i miss it's it's been a long time since you know the majority of submissions and actually you know very few submissions even come through the mail anymore but when i used to send submissions out you would have to send that self-addressed stamped envelope for all these youngsters out there who uh, don't even know what we're talking about and and they would send back like their rejection note but with the poems too because everybody didn't want to waste the paper and having to type it up like you know back when it was a typewriter yeah and um and so you'd actually open the letter you'd see the rejection and then you'd see the poems that were rejected with like fresh eyes because it was like this is how they saw it as it came to them and and i remember that experience and a lot of a lot of times just recognizing that a poem that you thought when you sent it out was great didn't work when you read it uh with that frame um so that is something that we kind of miss out on with uh, submittable and you just get the rejection and you don't uh you don't see the have to see the poem again in all its uh, stark <laughs> nakedness. Yeah, indeed, and there's that that sort of um, you keep trying to school yourself into not sending it out as soon as you've written it because that creative surge that you have, which is why we write poetry quite often, it it, it sort of uh, dissipates over a day or two. And if we send it out when we're on that high, <laughs> there's a good chance it's it's not going to make it. So so how do you re-enter a poem? That's always the problem I have if I'm trying to revise something. It's like I feel like I'm a different person, and it, it doesn't feel like it has the same energy that it did before when I originally wrote it with that spark of kind of something flowing out. Is there a way that you, you can get back into the poem after those months that you've been waiting? I think there are a number of ways. Um, quite often you just read it through and you make some small changes. That's the easy way because it's already formed. It's there. Um, but one of the things that, or some of the things that I've done is I, I, I try to remember the poem without reading it or having put it away for a day or two, and then get a blank piece of paper and write it again. Mm-hmm. Then see what the differences are, and play with the shape of it and things like that. That's interesting. So do you sometimes, find, yeah. Do you find when you do that that um, what you remember is the stuff that worked, or or what you remember doesn't is the stuff that didn't work? Or I generally yeah. find that. I remember the stuff that's the strongest in the poem, mm-hmm. although I might miss something. So then I will steal from both pieces to come up with a, you know, a hybrid. Yeah. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. Um, what do we have next? Uh, there is nowhere left is the one I've got next. Yeah. Uh, and this is an example of political of a political poem. I, when I was based in Dubai, um, I wrote of quite a lot of political-based poems. I think I became more politically conscious at that time, and and the people I mixed with certainly assisted me in that. Um, So this is about the refugee problem, and and I think it's a poem that's still fresh today. There is nowhere left. We move through your borders, your villages, your countryside. We walk with our lives on our backs, or children drunk from walking by the hand, or pasts blown up behind us. We move through your language, your donated food, your fields of tents. We walk without hope, as if this is our new reason for being, this great walk, this achievement of pushing the miles behind us. We move through your culture, your storytelling, your politics, We walk against the turn of the earth, east to west, our great numbers slowing its rotation. We will move through your memories, your imagination, 
your knowledge of yourselves. Our footsteps will dog the rhythm of your days. We will walk across your clean bed linen, your tablecloths, your conversations. There is no stopping now that we have started. There is no use erecting barriers, arguments, prayers. For you too are moving. You too are losing your place. Yeah, and that was uh, There Is Nowhere Left, uh, one of Frank's many political poems. Um, in, in your book, um, In the Coming of Winter, I remember, has a really stark turn to the political, too, where you sort of don't see it coming, then it hits really hard, that, like, maybe eight poems in or so. Um, what is the... What do you feel like? Why do you write political poems? What is the purpose of it for you? Um, is it more to come to terms yourself with your own sort of feelings and your own reaction and your emotions that, that go along with the politics? Or is it to try to change the world in some way? Do you think a poem can change the world? Is there, is there one sort of direction or the other you go when you're writing uh, political poems? Um, I don't think so. I think really poetry is as much about witness uh, as it is about anything else. And so I think we have some sort of obligation to act as a witness for the world that we live in. Um, and you probably see lots of political poems that come in uh, in response to you know news items in, in your weekly poem that you do. And I think we have this desire to to have a response and to have something to say. It may or it may not change the world, but it may change one person, or it may even change yourself. And if it does that, it's doing a job. So I I um, I feel that it behoves us to, to deal with these subjects, difficult as they are in poetry, and, and to put them down. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you go about doing that? Because one, uh, the problem with, with political poems usually is there, there's a sort of a sense of like, you know, we have such strong feelings about the topics that we're that are political. I mean, we just were sort of conditioned to have that. There's stuff we've thought about. And so we have this sense of, um, you know, these are my beliefs. And so getting to that extra layer that you were talking about before um, seems to be a difficult thing to do. And I think that's the problem with uh, so many poems that we get is submissions to Poets Respond <laughs> is that, um, you know, the, the, the poet knew exactly what they wanted to say before they were going to say it. And so the poem ends up flat and sort of one-dimensional and there's a sense of sort of preaching to the choir too, because it's like, you know, you agree with these good values and I'm, you know, saying that I have them and, you know, and poetry has to do something more than that. So how do you, how do you approach a political poem so that it has the layers that you were talking about being necessary for a good poem before? I think it's difficult. And certainly I'll have written a lot of political poems that never made it anywhere apart from the bin. Um, but sometimes in doing that, an idea will come out. So I think it's it's about finding uh, a different angle for the poem. In this side, it was about the walkings, about refugees. And, and I remember thinking, and it hit me, I think, when I saw a news thing where the people in this queue who were walking were dentists and accountants and, you know, school teachers. And I thought, this could be my life. This could be me. Um, and that's why at the end, it impacts all of us. And of course, with global warming, we don't really know what's going to happen. There's that hint that, you know, we can be all smug and feel happy in our Western culture that we're not suffering. But, you know, guess what? We could be the next people that's in a queue trying to cross the border. Mm-hmm. And do you think that, um, 
you know, because it, it, it one of the th- interesting things about you is you were you grew up in Ireland, but then you ended up having a career elsewhere, starting a business and being all over the world and the, the places that you lived. Was it that sense of of moving around and seeing the world from different perspectives that that made you engage more politically? Do you think um, was that was that something that that happened? I would think that's definitely it because I think if um, if I'd remained in Ireland, I you know I would just I would have been listening to news coming from Ireland and I. I wouldn't have had, um, wouldn't have maybe had the same insights. And, um, you know, when you meet different cultures and have good friends in different cultures, they, if they're really good friends, they will correct your, you know, your your misinterpretation of what's happening. And they will put you right. And those arguments and those debates inform you. Mm-hmm. And you become hopefully a little more humble um, and realize that, the fact that you've got a good life is uh, an accident of of birth and all the rest of it, and that you're not any more intelligent than people who are in a bad place, and so you you do start becoming a bit more political. I think uh, when you see injustice and you need to get that sort of balance back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that makes me think of um, taking a, a comparative religion class in college and and talking about and realizing how, um, you know, all religions are sort of moving from a, a self-centered perspective to a collective-centered perspective, you know, and, and not just about your, yourself, but about um, the whole collective as it, you expand outward in your consciousness into God, if it's a God of that religion or, or um, you know, the Tao or whatever it is. Um, and so, so it seems like that when you, you, you left your local part, you sort of built up a perspective that encompassed the whole world instead. And, and do you think that's, um, th- do you think that's the journey that we're all on is to start thinking more of other people than ourselves? I think so. I think if you, um, if you give more credence to other people, you become a better person. And if you become just focused on yourself, you become too self-centered, become a narcissist and you have a very small life. Um, you know, maybe you enjoy it. I don't know, but probably other people don't enjoy you. I think we have to develop a healthy level of humility. Um, and they do say that traveling is, you know, broadens your perspective. I think that's true. It's because you see other cultures and you realize there's a lot more out there. Um, and that's always good for us. And I think it does inform our writing as well. I think it enriches or has the potential to enrich your writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was what was so interesting about this issue, too, is that there was such a sort of a diaspora sense to it. There's so many Irish expatriates living in all different places. Um, and the issue has, you know, poets in Australia and New Zealand, and you, know, you were in Dubai. Um, what do you, We talked about this a little bit in the interview, but what, do you, what is it about Ireland that, that lets people, um, you know, have, take that journey and... and you know, and, and how does that affect the poetry, do you think? I think Ireland has always been a country with high levels of emigration. Um, and so I think it's almost part of the culture. There was a short period when it was going the other way, but I think it's back to people leaving. Um, and so I think there was an expectation that a certain percentage of people leave. But also because they spread out across the world, there is Irish communities in all of these places and, you know, people go out, go to those communities and mix with them. Um, I think that probably informs the writing. I think also it being um, a country that's in the Northern Hemisphere, it, it gets dark in the winter. So, 
you know, you, you get the usual things like storytelling and music that seems to go with that those sorts of winter evenings. And, and that becomes part of the culture, too. That's really interesting. I never thought of that that fact, uh, you know, that that it's even having seasons, you know, having a more extreme winters where you're you're bound and in, in snowbound like like it snowed in one week, it snowed seven feet here. And, you know, you could do nothing but read and, you know, share stories and play games, but there was nowhere to go and nothing to do, which which probably plays into the the culture of literature. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, let, let's do another poem. Um, we have Songbird next. Yes. Okay. And this was for a friend of mine in Dubai. Um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's about Lebanon and the situation in Lebanon at that time. Songbird. She opens the gate of her ribcage, lets the bird of her heart fly out. Away, she says, showing it the bitten moon, the cut-out trees against the grey blanket of sky. Fly, she tells it, pointing to the shivering sea, the hidden mountains beyond. For what, for what is there here for it but the need to go blind, to lose its voice, to break its back under the weight of each day? Here they polish their pain into currency. Here they trade in death. Here they torture the small white body of the soul until it gives up its ghost leaving them to their brutal flesh and bone. Go, she cries to her heart, and do not return, for they will clip your wings, strangle your song. Yeah, that was Songbird um, for Z Tripoli, August 2013. Um, another beautiful poem, and there's there's just so much beautiful music in all of these poems. Um how did it, how did you develop that that ear for the music? Um, I know you mentioned reading a lot, but was it stuff you read as a kid? Is it is it because you know a lot of things come out of nursery rhymes and and we sort of engage with poetry in that way um, very early on, and then you know the more we read, the more we develop that ear almost. And I I, I think a lot about how. Um, like I have no sense of pitch or anything because I don't do much music. And so, um, but, but if you were trained on that, you would learn more music. So how did you develop that, that ear for poetry? I think, uh, some of it will come from song, obviously. Um, and there was always a lot of music and song and my family and still is, um, that's still there. But I think just the poets that I was reading at school and that I came back to the Irish poets like Yeats. Um, was very, very musical. And then some of the English poets like Dylan Thomas. So at that time, the, the poets I was re I were reading were very much formal poets with a lot of musicality in their writing. Um, and I liked that. And I liked the softness of the images. And when you put the t those two things together, there was a sort of magic to it. Uh, and I always wanted to try and capture that if I could. Yeah, and there's something interesting too in your writing where it um, it, it's mostly free verse. Uh, you know, if you if you're counting the feet, there's a lot of variations, but free verse in the traditional way in which it's still sort of tied to verse. You can still hear like in that poem where we had um, um that small town brewery poem. Um, you know, there was the repetition, but there was also a sort of a, a, a metrical cadence to the lines, but then the feet varied a lot. How conscious are you of that as you're writing a poem? Is that something that you try to do? Because there's a certain music to having that much variety, which is very different from a totally, you know, non-metrical poem, and yet the the meter isn't repeating. Yeah, I, I'm not 
consciously writing uh, in meter as such. But what I will do is when a poem looks finished and I'm close to it is I will read it aloud. And I think it should fit in with the normal cadence of your spoken voice. And if it doesn't do that, if you stumble over part of it or if you if it doesn't read right, then there's a problem. And that's usually a problem with, you know, with the, the, the meter, the metrics are just not working. And you go back and you fix that and you change that. Um, and I suppose... In the earlier days, I was writing sonnets and still write the odd one. And if I write a sonnet, I like, I like it to be a proper sonnet, not a modern sonnet which has just got you know fourteen lines, um, and there can be just two or three beats to the line. I I like to try and have a proper, uh, uh, a sort of you know Italian or English sonnet and write it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's do uh, let's do another poem. Right, this one is called Visitation. The year after she died, she came to the door and called. He answered as if no time had gone by. He let her step in. She was pale as the moon on a watery night, smelt of wet leaves and grass. The day wouldn't stay in the room. Her voice when she spoke not more than a whisper of wind through the door jam. Her eyes were dark in her head, stars gone cold. He stood with all of his hurt, just stared at her face. If he could, he'd have touched her, held her hard to his chest. But already the form that she had was dimming, losing its place. In the end, she just smiled, then dissolved on the air, to his own slow implosion of heart. But then light came in at the window that had not been there before, and the day came back. And that was The Visitation, or just Visitation, uh, by Frank Dulligan again, today's guest on the Rattlecast. Um, I keep thinking about listening to just the beautiful sounds, and people are mentioning on the chat uh, windows on YouTube and Facebook about how beautiful your poems are, how, how musical they are. And I keep being taken back to that idea of, um, of um, you know, the darkness coming and having storytelling be a way to occupy the dark. And I wonder, what do you think the purpose of, of storytelling is? Why are we so drawn to it? And, um, and, you know, dating back even before the written word, you know, storytelling around the fire was so important to us all and to the history of humanity. Um, why do you think that is? What do we get out of stories like this about visitation, which is, you know, you're telling someone else's story here and sort of mythologizing something. Um, uh, why do we do that? What is the drive that humans have to, to make stories like this? I think some of it is to par- pass on histories and mythologies and sometimes to pass on what maybe we consider to be wise. So wisdom comes down through the myths and the stories that are there. And also maybe help as as a way of informing other people. So here is a poem about um, someone who has lost, a man who's lost his partner, but she comes back to him as a ghost. Um, and nothing much happens. He, You know, she's a ghost. He can't touch her. He, he, it, she doesn't satisfy his physical longing to have her back. But something does change at the end of the poem. And I think the story of the poem is that um, no matter how bad things are, change can happen um, and there are ways of dealing with it. And I think maybe 
um, the storytelling aspect of poetry is just that it's it's that ability to pass on a message um, and people get it better if they've got images or they've you know they've got those kinds of words than if they have um, if you just tell them straight this extra layer we talked about in poetry is what gives it to them I think yeah yeah definitely um, let's keep the poems coming um, morning at the morning after is next The morning after. The look in her eye helped me recall it. I remember how the, the moon bounced along the tree line, how the road kicked back behind me as I sped, slicing the air with the bullet of my face, my muscles full of the journey's song, my heart loud as a laugh, keeping time in my ears. And before that, Tumbling out of bed in the dark, my fingers clenched, my fists hardening, my toes fusing into hoof, spine stretching back and my neck arching. I remember the walls of the room like a cage, the need to burst through wind, to pound the road, the earth, and the look in her eye when I stamped and turned, tossing my head against the lacy frill of her lampshade, causing light to dance, wink off the gilt handles of her wardrobe, lick a shine up her long black riding boots, and her voice, husky, easy, easy, my love. Yeah, that was The Morning After, another great poem by Frank Dulligan. Um, uh, Frank, you've been around the world so many different places and, and always appreciating poetry everywhere you go and engaging with it in different ways. What, what's your sense of... Um, of how poetry is treated in different places. Um, you know, in Ireland, there's such a rich history, you know, with Yeats and everybody. Um, and, and then, and then going to Dubai, going to the, um, the far East, um, you know, you've been all over the place. Um, where's poetry's place? Like, like, what is it like as a co community of poets? Cause one of the things I noticed doing this Irish poets issue is that there's a real sense of community among the Irish poets. Like every time we post one of the Irish poems on social media, tons of, of other Irish poets are saying like, congratulations and talking to each other in a way that, um, that I'm not really used to seeing from other groups of people. So, um, so I don't know. Is, is poetry different in Ireland? Is it different in Dubai? Is it different in the UK? What, what's your sense of that as far as the community that surrounds poetry? I think there are differences. And I think since I came back to the UK from uh, Dubai, um, I've immersed myself a bit more in contemporary Irish poetry um, and reading um, poets, you know, poets that are there um, that have the same sort of sensibilities quite often as myself and it's a sort of refreshing to do that so i think yes different areas have a different kind of voice almost but good poetry is good poetry and it doesn't matter where it comes from sometimes it's even in translation um like i was reading some translations of russian poetry and and i was taken where i was thinking this i, I could learn something from this the way the poet is, poem is put together so i think it's it's um it's, I think each country has maybe its own type of voice, but if a poem is authentic, if it comes from the right place, and that doesn't mean that it's autobiographical, but it comes from the right sense of emotions and feelings that a person has, 
then that will come out in the poem and you will respond to it. Um, so I, I don't think I've answered your question, but I, I can't say that I, you know, I could say this is a typical Arab poem, this is a typical American poem. You know, I might use those phrases, like I would say American poetry is much more narrative-driven and it tends to be structured um, more than lyrical. Um, I'd say Arab poetry has a rich tradition. It's only beginning to come into English where you have things like the gazelle, which um, has yet to really make its mark, I think, in Western poetry forms. But these are things that are there and you respond to them. Mm-hmm. And what would you think of as like the, the character of Irish poetry? I mean, there are sort of, you know, stereotypes that you would think of, you know, Irish poets being, but but contemporary poets now, what do you think they have in common in terms of what, um, you know, how they're approaching poems? I think they, they will have, as I have, picked up a lot, uh, a, a lot of what we do from reading American poetry and English poetry, which, and you know, any other English poems written in the English language and that will inform what we write but we still have the same historical poetry roots that goes back to Yeats and um, you know to to Kavanagh and to, to those sorts of great names even to Heaney um, I think there will be maybe more music I think imagery I think seems to me to be something that's important there's an acceptance perhaps of myth and otherness and you know Having a, the presence of a dead person in a poem is not that strange in Ireland. It's an accepted thing. It's things that we do, whereas it might seem a little strange elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's hear another one. Uh, everything is next. Yeah. Everything. Now everything has gone. The moon with its cold music the slow white of the snow, the small turning of the leaf in the dark, the gate closing in on itself, the dustbin with its fat laugh, the buzz of the last van in the distance, the distance, you. There are books on the table, all the pages torn, the words have burned through the covers and smolder on the floor. Now everything has gone. The trees with their tattered leaves, the birds with their crooked smiles, the sky that sat at the top of the steps, the coin in the gutter, the bicycle leaning on its shadow, the horizon's accident in the distance, the distance, you. See how the waters call, there is such room under the waves, you could go down into it like the sun and never be cold again. Now everything has gone. The walls with their vertical pane, the little hooks of the wind, the rustle of children in the park, the dark, the road's irresistible urge to travel, the creak of the stars as they shift their geometry, the galaxy, you. And that was everything by Frank Delegan. And, and Frank, that poem has such an interesting form. Um, you know, people were looking on the screen now, but the, um, you know, with those lists, um, starting with the, you know, the 
definite article there, the moon, the slow white of the snow, the small turning of leaf. How did that, how did that poem get to have its structure? Um, you know, it feels like, like this, the poem was born out of the structure itself almost, or, or was it one of those poems that it took a lot of revision to find what you were trying to get at? I think the poem had um, some revision, but not that much. It started off, though, as about three or four pages, lists of pages, hmm. and it was from spontaneous writing. It was an experiment I was doing, which is, this is an interesting maybe way of writing poetry. I don't do it often, but I was watching a movie, and as the movie was happening, I was writing. I was doing spontaneous writing, um, and things started to repeat themselves, an image started coming, and then I would leave the movie run, and I would follow through on an idea, and then I'd go back. So I was unable to revise as I'm writing, and I was just pages of stuff. But then certain patterns started to come out. Um, and they eventually formed themselves into this sort of pattern. I had the, the list piece, which came from just very short lines. I had the the sort of um, four lines, um, almost little lyrical poems that then embedded themselves Um and initially, it was just going to be now everything is gone because there was so much in it. I called it everything. It's a, it's a poem about loss and how if you lose everything, it's it's a, you know it's devastating. And so the lists have that sort of effect. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. Um, and how often do you do that kind of thing? Because I, given you're so driven, I mean, you're starting starting companies and, and going around the world and, you know, taking this break when you realize you're overworking and getting into martial arts and poetry at the same time, it, it feels like you have a, a systematic approach to life, maybe, where you, you, you know, you tackle things through you know, the structure of how you're engaging with the world. And and so so do you do the same thing in poetry? Like is that exercise you gave yourself to to list thoughts as you were watching a movie, is that is that a kind of thing that you often do to to push yourself in different directions? Uh, I'd like to say yes, Tim. Mm-hmm. I probably don't do it enough. But every so often I will. Maybe if I'm going through um sort of a blank patch where there's not a lot coming. I look for some way to kickstart the creativity. Um, and that was one of the ways. And then the, and then you walk with the poem for maybe a week, you know, pulling out the words. And if I do something like that, like write in response to a movie or to music or something, I usually put it away for quite a while because I want to have made that break with the original impetus to get the poem going so I can come back into it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you mentioned um, when we when you did, did the interview, which I think it was in December, maybe last year, that you were in kind of a dry spell where the, the poems weren't yeah. coming as fast. Have you gotten out of that? Is that something? Uh, are you still still stuck in that phase? Um, no, I am writing a bit more now. Um, and I'm reasonably happy with, you know, with what's coming out. But it's not I used to be very prolific, but I'm not that anymore. But I think maybe, you know, I. When I was writing at a very high level, you know, I was only getting it right maybe 20% of the time. So, you know, now that I'm writing less, I might be at 25% of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and how organized are you with uh, with your drafts and things? Like, do you do you keep all the drafts of all your poems and, and you know, how much, how much organization goes into that? Uh, yeah, I'm very organized. Maybe that's the piece that came over from the business side. I have files of poems by year and multiple drafts within those files. 
if the poem goes through, you know, what I consider to be a major rewrite that's, you know, it's changed it a lot, and I don't want to keep the original draft, I'll just overwrite it. But quite often I will have two or three versions of the poem where I'm making changes. And sometimes those changes happen just before I send it out. And then I have to copy it back into my file because it changed just as I had on the file to go out. Um, so I, you know, I will do things like that and, and I, I, um, I will go back and look at them. And every so often I go back and look through a file at, at some of the poems and some of them have never made it out of the file. And if I think I can do something with it, I will. But a lot of them just sit there, talk to each other, keep each other company and feel sad. <laughs> Um, one of the things that's interesting too is that you um, spent a lot of time writing haiku as well, and you have two books of haiku, I believe. Um, is that something that you, because because you stopped, I, I think, right? You haven't been writing haiku lately. Is it something that you you were exploring and then sort of reached the end of what you could do with it? Do you think, or or, or did you just move on for other reasons? Why did you have this I, haiku phase? I think it happened early on because there was. Um, a sort of birth of haiku in, in the UK. And I got involved with it in, in, at a very early stage. And so I have a lot of haiku in some of the seminal anthologies of British haiku. Um, and that sort of thing excited me and interested me. Um, and then haiku became better known. And as a result, I think it became worse. So there are a lot of people writing haiku and they think it's 575 and that's it. Um, and it's not 575, it's it's not even an English poem, it's a Japanese poem that should be said in one breath. Um, and 575 is an approximation of it, um, and all of the other rules that you can have around a haiku, I won't necessarily go into them here. But um, I still, from time to time, will come up with a haiku, but not in the way I used to. Mm-hmm. And it's not passion, like other poetry is where my passion is. And I'm getting into other writing, screenplays and novels and short stories when I can. And I don't have that much time. So I'm always struggling for time to do stuff. And I guess haiku, you can always have there. But I think it absorbs you a lot. Um, And in some ways, this has just occurred to me, but in some ways I think it can satisfy you enough that you don't do the other stuff. Uh, and that's a danger, maybe. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I mean, if you have, if you're compelled to create something, then you you create something, you know, very short, and then that that drive is satisfied, and so uh, maybe you don't move on. Yeah. Um, what are the the screenplays and and things like that that you're working on? Um, are they are they similar in theme and, and style to your poetry, or are they very different? No, no, they're very different. The novels are more sort of fantasy, stroke, science fiction type. Hmm. Uh, novels um, and it's a much bigger platform to try and write nothing's happened with them so I shouldn't sort of put myself forward here as a novelist um, but I I do have and, and I then took one of the novels and turned it into a screenplay uh, and that's the first full screenplay that I've written but it did get picked up by a company in California and they have a shopping agreement on it which means that they will try and shop it around Netflix and all the rest of it and if they can get something going, then they'll get involved in it. Um, but I think it's now probably out of its its twelve month agreement phase, and uh, it's still out there. It's probably still flicking around somewhere. So nothing's happened with it. But then that's the story of writing. You don't write because you're expecting great things to happen. You write because you want to learn how to do these things, 
and certainly novel writing was a long learning curve and it was good. And it started the same way as poetry, started as a terrible prose writing and then got better. <laughs> um, how do you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you get discouraged, right? It's it sometimes with uh, how hard it is to publish and the, the, the reach of, of poetry in your writing. Um, how do you get through that? sense of discouragement or, or do you not do you do you just focus on the writing and, and not have to worry about that i think you do have to focus on the writing but i think maybe you also you get old and one of maybe the benefits of getting old is well certainly i've found is that you be you know you you accept a lot more you become more accepting of how things are and you're chasing less so you know i recognize that at my age i'm not probably never going to be a well-known novelist and might not even get a novel published because I'm probably too old. There is ageism out there. Somebody's looking for the next bright young thing and they're not going to look my way when they think uh, in that in that sort of description. Um, so I think you learn to accept that, you know, you, you're going to get lots of rejections when you send out. There are benefits in that. But you're writing for, foremost for yourself. And then if you can get published and if you can get published in good places... That's the icing on the cake. So. And then, you know, you can get involved in things like we are doing here. And that's a that's a big lift up. And a lot of things that you do in the poetry world do that for people. It gives them that lift. And maybe that's the encouragement they need to go out and, and continue writing and develop their writing career. Um, what do you think... Um... I just keep going back to this. This, you know, we're we're entering this phase with um, the AI generating, um, you know, poetry or essays or anything, and and I think there's something really deep that we get out of being creative writers. That's that's beyond even just the product. There's something in the process that that makes us grow as human beings, and that's why for me, I feel like we should have as many people writing poetry as possible. Um, and that kind of should be the goal more than, you know, the, the best poems ever being produced. It's that people are engaging with the world that way. Um, has that has that been your experience, that that it, it gives life a purpose and, and it gives yourself more clarity of thought? And, and is that really the, the reason why you write? Um, for me personally, yes, it's an obsession, I think. Uh, maybe it's just grown into an obsession, but I'd, I, I think I would probably have the jitters if, if I hadn't written for a long time. It would feel very strange if I wasn't creating. But, you know, being involved as I was with spoken word and various that you see some very young people beginning to write. You see them develop as well, which is even better. Um, but quite often they find here's, an here's a way to express myself. This is something I can do. So I think it does add value to life that way. Uh, they find a new mode of expression a new way of being almost, a new way of defining themselves. It may not be the greatest stuff ever. You you know, as an experienced poet, poet you can be very critical of what's coming out. Mm -hmm. But you need to stop yourself because at that for that person at that stage in the writing career, this might be brilliant. You know, you so you have to see where it's taking the person and what it's adding to them. Um and so I always enjoy open mic events for that reason. Do you find many, um, you know, is it something that there's a scene where you are that you get to go to open mic events? Because I've, um, since the pandemic, I I've had trouble finding, um, you know, people coming out to do stuff seems to be a little more difficult to, to get people to do. People seem a little more homebound and sort of content with where they are. And there aren't as much, uh, as much interest in that. Do you find that? 
Well, myself, my wife, Mari, just um, uh, recently, about six months ago, found um, in in a town close to us that th there was an open mic event that was happening. And so we went along to one and it had exactly the same vibe as those events in Dubai had. Very strong community feel, uh, good fun. And and I was pleased to be there. We went back to the second one. We're waiting for the the year when the third one's happening. Um, so I think that scene is still there. Certainly around London, I think it's still there, which is the capital. Um, but yeah, maybe there's less of it than there was before, but it's still happening and it's coming back, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Uh, we're just about out of time. We have one poem left. Do you want to, want to read that one? Yep, this is called Telling Stories. And it's for my wife, Mari. You invited a teaching colleague and her husband over we were young, learning to entertain. We didn't know them well. I had my instructions. When to pour the wine, not to hog the conversation. After dinner, we left the cooling coffee cups, the plate of untouched chocolate mints. I loosened myself into a sofa chair, a second bottle of red darkening in our glasses. They took a formal pose on the settee knees together, hands in laps. I suppose they were learning too. He may have had his own instructions. But you were softened by the wine and went with habit. Sitting on the floor between my legs, head on my knee, we drank and told stories, trying to coax some informality, some touch point with them. We bantered with each other. We were highly physical in those days, spending our time together on judo mats or in karate halls. So I expressed my disagreement with something you said by sliding a friendly choke around your throat. You countered not by breaking it, as I expected it was loosely on, but by reaching back and grabbing me where I'd brought my head softly to your shoulder and rising slightly pitched me out of the chair. Going over even in the layers of wine, I knew your move was technically superb and not to be outdone in front of guests. I twisted in midair to hook a leg, then swiveled to apply an arm lock, gain submission. We were high in the delirium of our entanglement before we registered our guests. Heels up on the settees, faces blanched. We did explain what normal was for us, that we were trained, this sport. But they remembered that their babysitter couldn't stay too late. It is agreed we finished up the wine, the chocolate mince, but not whose fault it was. Or who had won. Yeah, that's a great poem to end on. A really fun story, telling stories uh, for Mari, who's going to be here on the open lines in uh, just a little bit. Um, thanks, Frank, for being a guest. Uh, just great to hear your poetry. I'm always a, a fan of your work, so it's really cool to hear it in your own voice and a, a good set of poems. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Tim. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's always a pleasure. And uh, so so don't uh, worry about the instructions I'm about to give because uh, Mari can just sit in that chair and she can join us in a minute. But for everybody at home, if you would like to share poems on the open mic, let me pull up 
the screen. What you should do is email me um, at openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. Email the poem so I can show it on screen as you read. Then have your own copy with you and join the Zoom. And uh, the Zoom will be right here, copying the invite link. I'm going to paste it into YouTube and Twitter. Only if you'd like to share poems, um, feel free to come on over into the Zoom. If you'd like to just listen to poems and enjoy more poetry, sit tight right where you are, and I'll be back in just a moment with that. Uh, The stream's not going to end. But if you want to share poems, come over on the Zoom link, which I'm pinning to the top right now. So uh, I'll be right back in just a moment with uh, Open Lines. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for your patience as we uh, get everything organized. Uh, the prompt for this week, and, and I should have said, if you want to share poems on the open lines, you can share anything you want. It doesn't have to be a prompt poem. Um, it can be a current events poem, uh, something about the news, uh, something you wrote recently, something you wrote a long time ago that you just remembered and would like to share. Anything you want to share is free. Just share a poem. Hop onto that Zoom link and do so. But we did have a prompt for this week, as we do every week, and the prompt was to... Um, Right here it is. Uh, Pick a poem written in a language you don't speak. Translate the poem, and that's with scarecrows, into English without looking any of the words up. So these are fake translations is the prompt for this week. Um, I am uh, like 100% German by heritage, and I don't speak a word of German. So I thought I would pick a German poem, and I picked a German poet, um, which is right here, um, Bertolt Brecht. And um, I don't know anything about this poem, um, and so it's kind of funny, but but here we go. This is uh, it's, it's vom ertrunken uh, madchen, um, and then it goes on, I'll see ertrunken war und hinter, yeah, whatever. I don't speak German. Um, so I imagined what these words might mean and came up with this poem. I was thinking about the date it was written and thinking maybe it was like World War II kind of era, and so I, I translated it this way, and... Um, this is my poem that, that, with apologies, I guess, to, to Brecht. Some drunken machine. We all drank the war. Oh, wait, hang on one second. Let me mute. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, some drunken machine. We all drank the war and swam in thunder across the backs of the fallen flowers, shining their opal hues with such a splendor. We like to think their muse was power. Tangled and held by such an awful air As if a liquid veil had covered the world But cool as fish swimming on a dare Between fire and ice our lives still swirled In the homeward way a river bends We reached into the dark of night and found a light Through with hell its surface breached Nothing left could knock us from that height We were bleached limbs on a velvet wall of war. We gagged and languished, our stomachs filled with death's debris. Damn the hand that asks for more, and damn every ashen flower we distilled. So that was uh, that was my fake translation of. um, And then, and if you have a shorter poem and you have the actual translation, feel free to share that too if you're doing this prompt. And so this was the drowned girl. Oops, I lost the stanza breaks, but uh. But this is the drowned girl. So I was completely, uh, my, my guesses of what the horns were was completely wrong. The drowned girl. And it's actually a famous poem that I read before, but I had no idea that I was reading this in the German. Um, so I'll read this, this now. The drowned girl. This is the actual poem by Brecht. And the translation is by um, Timothy Aides. The drowned girl. When she was drowned, she floated on and on down the streams and brooks into the great big river. The opal light of heaven most splendidly shone as if impelled to do the body a favor. 
Grappled and held by the water weeds and the slime, slowly and out of proportion, her weight increased. Fishes swam coolly along her limbs, last tall as a fairy for green stuff and water beast. In the evenings the sky was as dark as smoke, with the stars by night it kept the light in play. But the brightness came on early, when morning broke, so she still had the start and finish of the day. As her pallid corpse lay foul in the water there, by God himself she was little by little forgotten, Her f first her face, then her hands, then finally her hair. She was just more meat in the water, decayed and rotten. So that was the drowned girl, very different from my um, imagining <laughs> as a war. Um, anyway, that was interesting. I, I don't know if they even call that a poem, but it was an interesting experiment. So I'm glad we did that. I hope everybody uh, enjoyed it who tried. Um, but now let's go to the total open lines. And um, Marie uh, Dulligan is here, as we mentioned. Hey, Marie, how you doing? Just lovely to be here. Yeah, it's a great. bit of a surprise. <laughs> arrived rather last minute yeah well i'm so glad we could have you share palm so what are you going to be sharing with us uh this is a, a quite an old piece called when you are dead mm -hmm. and it sort of resonates a bit after your talk of war but it's not war related okay well let's hear it when you were dead i will not bury you in cold clay your bones waiting while your flesh decays Worms in your hair and mud rotting your eyes. I will not bury you in the damp earth. I would rather send you to the fire and weep while you dance and play with the flames. Grieve while your smoke caresses the treetops. I will gather your ash in a clay pot or in wood and spill its greyness into the fastest river. Mourn while you travel on down waterfalls and through bright meadows until at last you arrive at the unending ocean. Its unceasing motion like a baby's cradle or an old man's rocking chair. And there, my lovely, you may have charge of all the wild forces of that open space. The explosion of sun, the cold of the moon, the acceleration of unbridled storms, lightning, thunder, roaring wind and soaring wave. You, the maestro conducting his orchestra. And that was Mary Dulligan with uh, "When You Were Dead." So, so what? Since you're here, um, what is the what has your journey through poetry been like? Um, have you been writing as long as Frank? Um, and uh, and and how much of a part of of, of your life is it? Uh, it's hard to say how much of a part it is because it it fluctuates. Sometimes I'm very into it; other times I ignore it completely. Uh, the journey sort of started when. I suppose I loved poetry in school, but to start actually writing, I was hanging around a lot with Frank's friends in Dubai and being very bored with the universe there <laughs> until I started mixing with his people and listening at open mic events. And I found myself saying, well, I'm sure I can do as well as that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and what do you think, um, you know, what have you gotten out of it, um, you know, through all this time? Um, have you, um, 
you know, you say it's something you do off and on. Uh, what is the what are the times that it's on have in common? Right, I think it's about processing stuff. Uh, often, rather sad or or traumatic events from the past, and uh, poetry is a a strong way of of exploring it. And because it's such a private activity, you don't ever have to share it with anybody. But often after you've formulated it into to some sort of shape, it's easier to talk about it mm-hmm. and, to, and to share it and to, to share the experience as well as the, the words. So for me, it's about processing stuff. Yeah, very well said. And I think that's really the what we get out of poetry. I think that's what we all do. So it, it's so cool. It's so great you could join us on the open lines. It's always great to see new pe- people, but especially when they have uh, such a close connection with the guests for the week. Thanks for joining us, Mari. Thanks, Tim. Yep, my pleasure. Yeah, that was uh, Mari Delegan with uh, When You Were Dead. Um, now let's go to let's go to Nivedita next. It's rare Nivedita gets to be live, or at least when not when she's rushing out to uh, get ready for work. Hey, Nivy, how you doing? Hey, Tim, I'm doing good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. So, uh, what do you have to share? Um, I did the prompt poem, mm-hmm. but my translation was. I think I got it a bit close, but it was so bad that I didn't include it in this. <laughs> I'm just going to read the translation of mine first here. And then based on that, uh, the original translation is even found on Google. It's even there in a book called Introduction to Poetry, which I didn't know when I started uh-huh. and chose this poem. So the poem I chose is called La Guitarra. It's a Spanish poem and it's by Ferdinand Lorca. Uh, so I, I the only language I know is French. I know a bit of German. So based on that, I sort of took guesses as to what the words were. <laughs> um, I was sort of close but still so far, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> the guitar. The crying of the guitar begins. The cups break. The crying of the guitar begins. It's useless to shut it up. It's impossible to shut it up. Oh, the monotonous cries, how it cries. How the wind cries about the snowfall. It cries over distant things, like the arrow cries for the afternoon. The first dead bird sits on the branch. O Gita, a wounded heart by five swords. <laughs> and then the actual translation is sort of close, but here we go. The we, um, It's the one that I put as by chat GPT because that's where I got it from because I didn't know how to find it uh-huh. on Google otherwise. So <laughs> uh, the weeping begins from the Gita. The glasses of dawn shatter. The weeping begins from the Gita. It's useless to silence it. It's impossible to silence it. It weeps monotonously like water weeps, like the wind weeps over the snow. It's impossible to silence it. It weeps for distant things, hot southern sand that longs for white camellias. It weeps an arrow without a target, the afternoon without a morning, and the first dead bird on the branch. Oh, Gita, heart is wounded by five swords. So yeah. I would that, say I got some close. of the words, but it <laughs> <laughs> was much better. Than I think me. the title sort of gave it away. Mm-hmm. I think the title sort of gave it away there. So, so what, what did you, uh, did you get anything out of this experience or was it, was it something you ever might consider doing again? Oh, I definitely would. I think it's, I think it's sort of interesting to figure out how far off the tangent you are with, <laughs> 
what you think the poet is trying to talk about and it sort of tells you how many different interpretations you can have of this one work like you read it you think about what you know of the poet you think about the time in which it was written and you sort of come up with oh i think this is what the words means by guessing the three or four words that you sort of know and then see whether your wavelengths match for what of a better word uh-huh. well very fun yeah thanks so much nivi always a pleasure to see you glad you could be live for for a change yeah uh-huh. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely being here. Yep, take Thank care. Thank you. Yeah, it was Nivita Karthik with uh, her translation of uh, the Lorca's La Guitarra. Let's go next to uh, Tom Barlow. I think Tom's been on once or twice before, right, Tom? Oh, you're on mute. Let me... Been on the um, on the, um, the Friday Critic. Ah, that's critic, right. Um, okay. Well, uh, yeah. Pretty, well, I guess it's your first time on the open lines. And where are you calling from? Yeah. Oh, from Columbus, Ohio. Ah, okay. And what do you have to share? Uh, I sent it. I think I sent sent that in a poem called. It's really important that it uh, be shared visually. Yeah, I have it right here. I won't so. make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a um, yeah, quiet night thought by Lee Bai, and and so so were you just going by the characters, not knowing what any of the characters meant? Correct. Yeah, interesting. So, how did you even, how did you even approach doing that? Because that's, um, I, how would you know? <laughs> exactly. I tried to to make a look at each character and and see what it reminded me of hmm. in the physical world or the the uh, in the process. And and I'm a little little hesitant because I think I'm taking advantage of a famous poem that is so beautiful in its own mm-hmm. that doing this process is is could be an insult, but I went ahead and did it anyway. Oh, it's just fun. It's just all fun. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Let's go ahead and hear it. Okay. I sleep splayed out now, for space is my new luxury. I once climbed ladders to pick pears with my husband, but no more. My hair is spiked to show my name is not all that I am, though I wear a hat at work. I walk my daughter to school, watch her on the teeter-totter. Later, I will play hangman with her as a bribe for homework time. In the evening, I find a place to sit on the seaside docks and watch the boat taxis and the fish vendors. The rascal boy is always in such a rush. I carry the sticks of my language in a bamboo box in case a poem comes to me. Unobserved, I will assemble the words on the spot, then watch as they catch fire until my thoughts are mere scribbles. I stir the ashes just to be sure. Oh, that's a great poem. And I love this. It's... it. You know, I mean, it has nothing to do with the poem, I'm sure, but it, um, you know, stirs so much thought in yourself. It's really interesting to uh, to hear. Let me try to find a translation of the poem that we can. I've read. got one here. I can read if you'd oh, like. Oh yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And I'll uh, I'll put this up. It's very sh- yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It's very short. Bright moonlight before my bed. I suppose it is frost on the ground. I raise my head to view the bright moon, then lower it, thinking of my home village. Yeah, yeah, great poem in that in that tradition um, by Lee Bai. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's it's really fun to see what uh, comes up with this exercise. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. It was fun. Yep. Take care. It was uh, Tom Barlow once again with uh, with uh, Quiet Night Thought. Um, next, let's go to uh, Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hey, Carla. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm back on the lake. It's a beautiful day. A little gray. Uh huh. Um, Ben, and I'm happy to be here. And um, 
So the way I approach this is I'm listening these approaches to translation, I think are wonderful. But the one that I did was uh, based on the sounds of the words that I thought were if I could <laughs> in any way pronounce them. And then I so I took that and I wrote, you know, what I called my translation. And then I wrote that down as one poem and and then modified it just slightly to make it a poem. And um, but it's still pretty wild. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this is the. Um, the weirdness that comes out by doing it this way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I actually, you know, so I did two poems this way. Um, so I have a short one, a four line one, one after this one, if there's time, but um, this one is the first one that came out is by a Polish uh, poet, uh, Justynia Bargielska. And I, I didn't give you the translation except for my own, which you can see if you wanted to look at the work afterward. Mm -hmm. But um, my title is uh, Dizziness at the Amphitheater of More Wistful Doggies. <laughs> That's great. Call to the jockeys. See them. No, swear at them. Watch their silliness do damage. Go listen for the odd lots just with their panties. Lassie sees neither size. Be glad to see Nemsi, the jock full of moles, terrorize his beady, putrid bowels. What's this diplomacy? Interrogate each cute urge. Your juices, neither mother nor breath, proposed on a hammock. I just saw the beast on the nearest tree. Neither judge nor dust, just to talk. Be the promised land. My treasures eat and poemize. Fear not to drink your pride. Your pride is neither lily nor breath. I pose as my words a lazy, tiresome ne'er-do-well. Don't bed down prone. Be glad to dodge they who aren't a talky busybody. It will cost you in wiliness your wisest dimension. Oh, very interesting. Dizziness at the Amphitheater of More Wistful Doggies after uh, Justinia Bargilska. Um, yeah, it's very cool. Why don't you read the other one, too? Um, the other one yeah, is... it's only oh, it's four Brecht. lines. Yeah, it's a short one. Yeah, it's so a Brecht, and it's only four lines. And, I, and the last line of that poem becomes the title of this poem. So... Bed down under fur after hubby goes splat. Watch your house put on a dinner party. Drink yourself blotto. Stretch. Talk. Pick out the derelict, derelict gnarls from the stunning halibut. Be gay, all of you. You must, or worse, icky and stark. <laughs> That's very good. I like that poem a lot. It's interesting. Uh, you know, this seems like if you ever have writer's block, like there's no excuse ever because you can always just do this and then you come up with like weird something and then you can turn that into a poem and then you got a poem. So it's uh, a pretty fun yeah. exercise, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for giving this to us because it was really fun. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad you appreciate it. Take care, Carla. Bye. Bye. That was Carla Schwartz with two poems. Uh, and now let's go to uh, Guy Chambers. Good morning, Tim. How's it going? Good. How you doing, Guy? <clears throat> oh, pretty good. I got just got a couple of announcements here. I got a few poems being published here the last couple of weeks. They're 
Uh, one that I read back in, I think it was the first start of the year, January, that number 175, they're a park bench bench. Well, I got that published in the Stroll of Poets. Oh, cool. And I got another, and then I got another poem, uh, one of my micro poems published in uh, Parkland Poets that just came out a couple of weeks ago. So I got a couple there. <clears throat> and for these uh, first, I got a couple of poems here. My first poem here actually got published online for the, in the Parkland Poets. They had a section they do every, in April, but they did every Saturday, they put about three poets mm-hmm. on there with a poem of, called uh, A Bouquet of Spring Poets. It's about for uh, poets about spring. So I, I put down one of my micro poems, so here it goes. Cool, yeah. Daisy. A daisy. Dancing ballerina in the breeze. Ah, uh, very nice haiku. I like that guy. Yeah. And plus, I got the, another one I got published in my book there called Snowy Shadows. Snowy Shadow. An Arctic face, northerly aloft upon the edge. Ice breath, icicle stare, mysteriously burnished in a cool breeze. Sturdy, brassy skulker, glassy-eyed, stocky glaze. The snowy shadow howls, piercing the crisp air, seizing the winter moon. One brisk glance then sleeks away on the soft snow into the glacier night. Uh, very seasonally feeling. Thanks for sharing those, Guy. Always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, I always had a picture with that one there, too. I didn't get the time to send it there. Like, I had a picture last week there I had with my one poem there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice, like, putting pictures with the poetry sometimes. It's really good. Yeah, it definitely is. It. Yeah. yeah, well, congrats on the publications, too. It's always uh, good to hear yeah, good news. Thank you. Yep, take care. Yeah, I got a couple I got a couple more poems coming up pretty quick. Again, I got a notification that they'll be coming out soon, so I'll be telling about them, too. Very cool. Well, congratulations, okay. Guy. Nice. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. It's so a guy chambers with snowy shadow and a daisy. Let's go to a Dick Westheimer next. And a Dick didn't think he was going to be here. He is a streak of I don't know how many shows he's come to in a row, but um, <laughs> but but we thought the streak was broken because he had some other plans for this time, which is not the usual time. But like magic, here he is. Hey, Dick. Well, I'm sorry for the magic. The friend got sick, so. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. That's a bad news. Uh, bad reason for it. We, we had. We had three-day made pizza crust ready to put in the wood oven, and and mm. so that's what we're going to have for dinner tonight. Yeah, well, that sounds uh, good. Hopefully, that the friend's not too sick. I know I've I've still uh, you know if you you can see off camera because you're on the Zoom the still coughing, even though it's just like a lingering can't get rid of it kind of thing. So stuff's going uh, around. Well, speaking of going around, I I just loved that interview. You know, may, may, maybe it is uh, the uh, um, um, I, you know the the Irish mystique, but I just love the conversation about um, uh, witness, especially you mm-hmm. know, as, as something that I do occasionally, and um, it was a great interview. Glad yeah. I could make it. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Frank's just a great poet. I love. Uh, I've always loved his work, so it's really cool getting to know him better. Um, so I, I did a very short Zimborska prompt poem, and I have a poet's respond, one or the other or both. What's your call there? Uh, I think you can do both, because we, we we have one, Carolyn Codd's left, and then I'll, I'll read some other poems for people who can't be here, but that's about it. So yeah, feel free to do both. 
Okay, well, I'll start with the Zimborska okay. one that I sent in uh, via email, and it's um, I do have the translation, but instead I just thought I would put up. This is almost close to Tom's, you know, Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, I wouldn't know uh, anything either. Although I didn't know anything of German, apparently. <laughs> uh, um, and. Uh, I, I also chose Zimborska because uh, in my poetics group, we'd done this before with a couple of her poems, just tried to bring them to the table <clears throat> like this. So I like the exercise. So my translation to however this is pronounced is this, Alzheimer's. A window opens to the park far below, all obscured by interminable fog, except for a small boy standing alone. He looks up at me looking down, beckons. I pull the curtain and forget. Oh, that's a great poem, Dick. And I, I wonder, um, maybe you could read the, if you have the Zimborska there, could you read it? Because I'm kind of curious how far different it is. What I love about this this exercise and it just it sort of frees you up to do whatever you want like you have the excuse to be like oh that's what i thought so like you don't have to in interject any kind of um this is going to be a good poem on it you're just you're like it's the ultimate excuse and so it's fun to yes. see where your imagination takes you when you don't have any um you know there's no um investment in it i guess emotionally so uh but that turned out to be a really cool poem well and and it became cooler, if I can say that about my own poem, after the end, when I got to the last word, and I thought, oh, this is about Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. yeah. and and mm -hmm. then moved back up to the title, which was, you know, a strange reveal for myself. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's hear what it, what it actually is. Uh, her poem is Example. A gale stripped all the leaves from the trees last night, except for one leaf left to sway solo on a naked branch. With this example, violence demonstrates that, yes, of course, it likes a little joke from time to time. Oh, that's really good, too. I don't know if I like your poem or the, or the Zimborska better. I like them both. Well, uh, for folks who don't have th this book, and I love the cover. I just love her, her mm -hmm. sense. Uh, and that's, uh, is that the, what is it for everybody who's listening? Uh, that's here by Wislaw Simborski. Okay, I, I think it was written after she um, won the Nobel, um, and I, I just love her work. And I heard some of her work recited in in Polish a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Oh, it is yeah. the most musical stuff I could imagine. The way the way somebody who speaks Polish. The translations just can't do them justice. No, I'll have to try to find some of that then. Thanks. Uh, okay, so what do you want to share from Poets Respond to? Uh, so I did a Poets Respond poem, and I actually just want to read it because I find sometimes reading poems out loud in an open mic, I get to hear them in a different way. Yeah, so definitely. Do you want to explain uh, what, how the poem, what's it about? Yeah, so this is one of those terror shootings, mm -hmm. uh, the one that the outlet mall. And I think what struck me and came out in the poem is weird as it is like this one sort of hit home as like oh gosh where can i not go yeah mm -hmm. as opposed as opposed to other people I'd, i i'm not in elementary school so a shooting in an elementary you know it's sort of like the the um Niemeyer, uh, thing first they came for the socialists you know yeah. first they came for the elementary school students mm -hmm. but i was not an elementary came for the school. outlet mall yeah 
<laughs> and then they came from the outlet mall and I was at an outlet mall. So um, um, that's this one. Um, in response to being so long spared predation, and the epigraph is from Ovid's Metamorphoses, the poison plant grew on soil infected by Siberian teeth. Mallard ducks return to Glenny's Creek. A mottled hen dabbles right behind her drake. He's so proud in his emerald crown. Their ducklings paddle in a tousled line, then scared by me, scut frantic down the stream. The chicks can't fly. They've nowhere to hide. It was always thus for ducks, always foxes and my kind lurking in the reeds and stealthy mink that slide into their nests, pile up more bloodlet dead than they can eat. But mink and foxes dressed as men are the new rage. They have guns that shred flesh worse than Cerberus teeth, uh, claws and teeth. They lurk in the weeds by schools and hunt in the aisles of stores and outlet malls and city streets. We are all ducks these days, sitting soft-bodied prey, waiting our turn to be taken by foxes, stalked and savaged at every bend in every stream. We and our brood glide through our days like ducks on Glenny's Creek. But I think to leave the streets to this new in unhuman breed that whets its appetites on our ordinary lives. So I'll order my groceries online, scan the internet for deals, keep the kids in sky, inside, watch movies on my TV. We'll choose to be caged ducks and ducklings with no need to learn to fly. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. A great, uh, great image there, capturing, uh, capturing really a feeling that so many people have with um, all the shootings and yeah, another good one. Always a pleasure, Dick. And I'm glad you could make it, even yeah, though you. Uh, you know, despite uh, the 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 un unfortunate reason for it. Yeah, what what a what a nice surprise out of a bad surprise. Yeah, thanks so much. yeah, definitely. Thanks, Dick. Good to see you. See yeah, it was Dick Westheimer once again with uh, in response to being so long spared predation. And uh, last but not least on the Zoom is uh, Carolyn Codd. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing today? Hello. Okay. You can hear me all right? I can hear Yep. There you go. I hear you. It's a little quiet, but I will turn this up and turn mine down a little bit to match. Yeah. So how are you doing? Okay. All right. I'm doing okay. Um, I have a, uh, it's mainly a response um, poem. To, to the month of May. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually was, I hoped to be able to do it right on May Day, but then I had another commitment and I still have commitments on Monday evenings, but this is in the morning, so that was good. Oh, that's perfect, um, yeah. And I think this is more maybe a kind of a prose poem. Um, and then I have a, a new mini poem that I think could be kind of a Saiku thing. Oh, interesting, yeah. Well, let's hear them both, yeah. Um, has to do with gardening too so okay so the first one is heart flowers in a corner of my garden i'm gonna put my glasses on <laughs> in a corner of my garden there's a bush of pretty pink roses just a small potted plant when given to me by my fellow gardener friend before her expected death she'd love to see how it's grown and flourished once planted in the ground with care we had also exchanged a few other plants. These two are still in my garden. 
living tokens of our friendship, which can be shared with others. If I move away from this place, these plants and flowers can't go with me, but will live on in my memory. In my heart appear other flowers growing up from bulbs and seeds planted there by love. Many are often dormant and have their own seasons. They spring up, sprout, and bloom unexpectedly, prompted at times by a flash of memory or by a need for light and lightness to brighten up those hours and days of darkness. It seems quite natural to have flowers around when celebrating joyous occasions, birthdays, weddings, Christmas, Easter, but the appearance, appreciation, and love of flowers can also help us in coping with times of loss and grief in a gentle and even beautiful manner. Perhaps God created flowers for his own enjoyment as well as ours, and hopefully he finds delight in knowing that they aid us in dealing with our own feelings and in being more sensitive and caring in our relationships with others. Yeah, beautiful poem. The heart heart flowers, a great great metaphor for uh, for spring too. Um, thanks for sharing that. And then you have another one, the uh, little haiku saiku thing. Yeah, and this just comes from a recent garden experience where I threw some seeds that were kind of left over in a spot mm-hmm. just because I where else to throw them, and a few days later they had already come up. Oh wow! So, and I I sort of forgot that I even put them there. So. <laughs> So it's just called uncertainty. Plant some seeds in an unlikely spot. Be surprised. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that a lot. Thanks for sharing that uh, uncertainty. Uh, Carolyn, always a pleasure. I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's been a bit, so it's good to see you again. Okay, thank you. Yep, thanks. That was Carolyn Codd with Uncertainty and uh, Heart Flowers. And now um, I think that's going to do it for the open line section, or the, the Zoom part. But we have some people who... Um, Mailed poems in who are usually here or uh, couldn't be here at a certain time today. Um, let's see what we have. So um, Lucy Chow. Oh, Lucy Chow included audio. So I'll, uh, I'll download Lucy's audio. Um, yeah, I think in in, uh, in China it must be like 4 a.m. right now or, or something. Um, let's go to um, – well, that's downloading. Let's see what Bishwajit Mishra did for us. So um, – Let's see. So he's got Shut is Your Door. Here, I put this on screen and uh Okay. Um Shut is Your Door translated from the Sumitranadan Pants Hindi poem Um Bund Tamhar Dwar. So here is this uh this poem by Bishwajit Mishra. Shut is your door, the sun comes smiling in the east with a luminous garland. The lotus wakes up in the pond. You keep sleeping at this time. Shut is your door. The euphoric breeze is immersed in virgin sweetness. The hum of the bees keeps reverberating. The songs keep flowing out of the avian throats. The redolence is weighing down the quiet flowers. Shut is your door. Oh, my life, the light awaits, and love turns into a doorman. The light is to shine the way. Love is to meet you. Shut is your door. Songs winged with joy transcend the sky. The soul's melancholy call can't find a way into the heart. Shut is your door. Today the aroma pervades. Honey abounds in a wide-open earth. Can you stop today? The honeyed life's waves lashing at your heart. Shut is your door. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Bishwajit. 
Um, <clears throat> let's see, there's another very short poem that he sent too, which is translated from um, the Nepali poem Pagal by Lakshmi Prasad Devkota. So let's do that poem uh, really quickly too. Crazy this is, and uh, we'll, do, we'll do this one. We got a couple more too to share as well. So here's Crazy translated from the Nepali poem Pragal by Lakshmi Prasad Devkota. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong, but here we go. Crazy. I must be crazy, my friend. This is how this is how is my condition. I see the words, I hear the sights, draw the smell from talks. Rather than aerial, underground voices, I feel those things whose existence the people do not recognize, whose from the world does not know. That was crazy. Uh, translated very loosely by uh, Bishwajit Mishra. Let's see what else we have. So Katie Dozier's here, or well, she's not here, but she's uh, maybe listening. Um, so let's see, there are two. Let's see, she's got two as well. So um, yeah, so she had the translation. Yeah, we got plenty of time. We have like like ten or fifteen minutes left. Um, she's got the translation. Uh, she chose Brecht too. I mean, that's three Brechts. Um, I don't know. Maybe uh, that comes up quick when you Google. <laughs> but um, so this is um, here. We'll put this on the screen too. This is um, Schickmir ein Blatt, which is, uh, uh, so it goes Schickmir ein Blatt, Doc von einem Strauch, if I'm, I'm butchering that terribly, I'm sure. But this is Katie's uh, fake translation. Uh, Slice me with your pen. Slice me with your, with your pen. Let it compose through the night a ballet of stars. With the planets, words dance until the darkness is struck with light. A volta inked by the morning sun. And so, uh, and here's the actual translation, since it's a short poem. Send me a leaf. Uh, and this is translated by um, Johannes Bielharts. Send me a leaf. Send me a leaf, but from a bush that grows at least one half hour away from your house. Then you must go and will be strong. And I thank you for the pretty leaf. So very interesting. That was a Brecht poem. Um, interesting exercise. I'm, I'm wondering what Katie thinks of that. I don't think we, we haven't talked about that yet, but we'll see. Um, and then she also included uh, this tribute poem, which is something I thought was really nice that she did yesterday. Um, so um, Doyle Brunson died. He was a legend in uh, the poker world. And uh, you might know that Katie uh, Dozier was a professional poker player uh, for a long time and knew Doyle, and the whole world kind of got together in a nice way and, and expressed gratitude. He was 90 years old and somebody that everybody in the world, I guess, just universally looked up to. And uh, so that becomes a metaphor here in 10-deuce offsuit rain, which I think there's a lot of poker terminology in this. I assume 10-deuce. Actually, I know because I listened to part of um, part of this Twitter space. They were talking about him. At 10-deuce, I, I gathered that he won some big tournament with a 10-deuce with a as his uh, hold cards, which is just crazy. I, th- I mean, based on what I uh, uh, gather. Because there's, uh, there's not much you can go on with a 10 and 2, but apparently he, uh, <laughs> he held that and won something. But um, but anyway, this is a uh, ten deuce offsuit rain, an epigram by Doyle Brunson. There is there's no life like the life I've lived. You're free like a cloud floating up in the sky. Um, so here's the poem: In a world without good guys, he was the good guy. A collared shirt under that white cowboy hat and his ten gallon smile posted above a shuffle of chips. Only he could flip breaking his leg into good luck. Instead of the NBA, he gambled his way with a super system, zoomed through saloons into the Bellagio's room, cracking one-liners from the seat of his scooter. How many times did his hands graze the felt as though it were grass? 
the no-limit curve of his shoulders raised on through the years, hunched puffy clouds over the poker table just to teach us to look up. So it's a wonderful tribute, a wonderful use of poetry because people um, all over are reading a poem now who are uh, just in the poker world and not in the poetry world. It's, it's expanding the borders of poetry and, uh, and putting a good use to that. So that was very cool. Ten Deuce Offsuit Rain by Katie Dozier. And we have a couple more to share, and then we'll do the Saiku to close out the show. So it's nice to get to these uh, poets who um, usually can't uh, make it to the Zoom. This is Dear Blacksmith. Or no, this is a Carlton Johnson, I should say. A new translation of an Icelandic poem, um, Iron and Rubber. <laughs> and the original is Yarm og Gumi. But here is uh, Carlton Johnson's short translation. Iron and Rubber. Dear blacksmith, you who crawl here between the beds in the shadow of the newly hatched flower, I feel bad at seven years old, your misfortune. Nor may you, at a general disaster, the rubber soul. And then uh, here's got the original, which I won't even try to uh, to translate. But thanks for sharing that, Carlton. Um, Janthi Rongen, um, let's see. Oh, she's just saying, so, so this isn't for the open lines. Let's do, uh, we have Ted Guevara and then Lucy Chow, and then we'll wrap up the show. So here's Ted Guevara. Um, he let go with this translation from the Portuguese. And um, the poet, I'm not sure he didn't say the poet, but let's see what this poem has. Gusto. Or Ghosto. Here we go. This is a Ted Bernal Guevara's translation. Ghosto. I am a reviewer born in the wrong decade. I'd kill a fatted horse and let everyone know I'd, I've done so. But I don't feed to the masses, for they have a thin lining, ulcer-prone to leak out their meanest spirit. I have lost the snug fit. Ideal man puts on his shoe one at a time, but his eyeglasses all at once. I am a reviewer. I like things unequitable to the best of my candid thought. I do don't increase my intent maniacally. I'm not fragile like a flower. I am delicate like a bomb. So there's Gusto, or Ghosto, I guess, by Ted Bernal Guevara. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. And now um, Lucy Chow will close it out. Then we'll do the Saiku. And Lucy Chow sent the audio. So I will pull that up. And these are Haiku by Lucy. Um, let me pull this up in a way that uh, everybody at home can hear. And um, and here are the haiku. Translated snippets from the birdscape is what she calls this. Here we go. with the, um, And I, I assume maybe Angie Minko, um, Out of the Mouths of Birds. Um, there's an epigram. But here, we'll let Lucy, Lucy tell you. And here is me reading the poem translated snippets from the birdscape. And I probably hardly do any justice to uh, the transcribed bird sounds in this poem, but I will try and do my best, but still pardon me, all the beautiful and and melodious birds. living in my vicinity. So here is a poem. Translated snippets from the birdscape. Birds did evolve their calls and songs by echoing the sounds of their environment, turning the ambient into the meaningful. Angel Malenko, out of the mouth of birds. 
cabin, fruit trees, pond, wings under the eaves, roaring like turbines. Chirping fur of zephyr, blackbird. Iori, chiori, criori, griori, dryoshio, shiorio. Bright encumbrio, red headed tit. Whoa, wow, ow, wow, wow, wow. Skimming in search. Supreme winged swallow. Glar, 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 Serenette, not a pet, not a pet, not a pet. Budgie behind bars. Curved beaks rattling against slivers of bamboo. And here is the haiku that I mentioned in my letter. Scanning the rain, drip drop. Drip drop, drip chirp chirp. Blackbird breaks iams. Thank you for listening, and I'm Lucy Cho. Thank you. Yeah, that was Lucy Cho with a really interesting、uh, set of poems there,、um, actually translating birdsong. Translated snippets from the birdscape. I didn't realize that would be literal. That is really interesting, Lucy. As, as your stuff that you send always is. Thanks for sharing that.、Uh, and I was trying to, to read some of it to、um, the people still on the Zoom.、Um, and I forgot to take my little face out of the corner, but that's what I was doing. And, and I realized that I don't know how to, how to tr- translate the,、uh, the bird song like Lucy does, but that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Lucy.、Um, I think that was the last of what we have for the、uh, open mic section of the show, right?、Um, Main. Yeah. So、uh, we'll wrap it up like we always do with a Saiku this week. And the Saiku,、um, if I can re- recombobulate and find it here, the Saiku is based on this article um, from, uh, from the Max Planck Institute、uh, for Empirical Aesthetics.、Um, and、uh, it's right here. So.、Um, Um, how online art viewing can impact our well being.、Um, and so, what they did with this study was they、uh, just took surveys of people before and after viewing online art. And they found that、um, 
not only do is it improve improve people's moods just to view art online, uh, but also that uh, there's a metric. What do they call it? Aesthetic. Your your aesthetic. Uh, uh, where do they go? Your aesthetic responsiveness is actually a metric that somebody developed a while ago, and they could apply this metric and predict how much people's moods would be improved by viewing art, even in digital form online. So they looked at Monet's Water Lilies, and um, and people who watched it. Um, improved their or decreased their anxiety and, and improved their happy feelings by some uh, degree that was predictable based on how much you, you can you're receptive to art. And since everybody watching the show, of course, is very receptive to art because we are enjoying poetry, um, it just made me think of how um, you know you would benefit from from adding art to like your social media scrolls, like follow some art galleries or something and um, and make art a part of your life because it actually helps according to this study. But here is the Saiku that uh, was inspired, or that that, that story inspired. Uh, here we go. Bloom scrolling the web of water lilies. Bloom scrolling the web of water lilies. That is your Saiku for the day, and that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been great, as it always has. Next week's prompt on the Rattlecast um, is inspired by Frank Dulkin's poem, Small Town Brewery Blues. Um, and it's to write a poem about a memory from childhood using Frank's form in that poem, which was the, um, if you remember, you have to go look back at that poem, but the first two, it's, it's three-line couplets, or three-line stanzas, I should say, and uh, the first two repeat the rhyme, and the third line rhymes, so there's a lot of repetition in that, like Frank was talking about enjoying. That's your prompt next week, to write a poem about a memory from childhood using that form. Um, and we don't know the name of it, uh, I'm going to call it in my head the Dulligan. But uh, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to call it, write a poem in that form about a childhood memory. And uh, as we mentioned earlier on the show, next week's guest is going to be uh, Anne Casey, another Irish poet uh, living abroad. She's in Australia. Um, Her newest book, Portrait of a Woman Walking Home, will be the focus. But she has a whole bunch of other books and a whole lot of interesting things to talk about. That's going to be Rattlecast number 195. And that's at the regular time, even though she's uh, abroad. Um, she's in Australia, which kind of works out perfectly. It's like morning for her and evening for us, and that's great. Uh, that's going to be Monday, May 22nd, Rattlecast number 195. The regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.